Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. With the Winter Olympic Games coming up, um, I wanted to talk about Disney's long history with sport and the synergy between Disney and their sport relationships. And so Michael Crawford returned to talk to us again about his expertise and his knowledge regarding the history of Disney and their synergy and their relationships with sport leagues, sport teams, and major events like the 1960 Winter Olympic Games. This was a great time, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Please come along with us on our adventure. All right, students, um, welcome and welcome everybody else who is either watching or listening. Um, we have a return guest. Michael Crawford is returning um, to talk to us today. He is the author of the Progress City Primer, um, a co-host of uh, the Progress City Radio Hour, um, and he is very, very knowledgeable on the history of the company, the history of the parks. Um, and if you missed the, the, the interview or the visit we did with Michael the first time, um, go back and watch that or listen to it and, and read the Progress City Primer. It, it's one of my like, favorite books for tidbits about the company and everything. Um, I still almost uh, on a regular basis, I still think of Bicentennial Ben. That's one of my favorite things from that book. Um, but uh, so what we're going to talk about today is with the Winter Olympic Games coming up, um, I thought it would be fun to discuss Disney's, as a company, their involvement with sports. And they've had involvement with the Olympics, um, but they've also had involvement with sport outside of the Olympic games. I think most people know about the NBA season in 2020 finishing at wide world of sports. Um, but uh, outside of that, they, they have had a lot of involvement with the sport industry um, and has both helped the sport industry and has used sport to help grow the company as well. So um, Michael is the perfect person to talk to about that um, because he also discusses Disney's involvement with the 1960 Olympic games and the winter games in um, his book. So without further ado, I've spoken long enough. Uh, welcome, Michael. And for people who haven't watched or listened to the previous visit, um, could you give us the, the two or two and a half minute um, kind of intro as to your fandom and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, I started off, I was a fan from an early age. We went when I was five uh, to Walt Disney World, and uh, that kind of hooked me pretty hard and you know, grew up during the glory days of the Disney Channel when all that old stuff was on uh, TV regularly every day and just kind of grew up immersed in this stuff. And uh, eventually I, I started blogging about it at Progress City USA. And that kind of caught the eye of people. I wound up doing some work for D23 and for the archives, helping program some events for D23. And then one thing led to another and I've done some 
contract work for Walt Disney Imagineering and also uh, now Disney Event Group down in Florida. So yeah, it's just kind of a hobby that became a career accidentally. <laughs> well, and it's it's an awesome hobby slash career that you have um, given giving us all the information um, that that you collect about the company. And I did want to ask one thing real quick um, since you since you mentioned it in your intro. Um, since the last time you and I spoke. Um, the inside the Disney archives has been released on Disney plus. And I just wanted to get your kind of quick re reaction to, to that show. I loved it. I hope everybody checks it out. It was a lot of fun. I, I was, I lived in LA from what 2011 to 2015 and spent a lot of time over the archives doing research or just hanging out. And it was so fun to see all those folks on TV, but also they've done some amazing projects since I uh, moved to Florida, uh, like the restoration of Walt's office to its original or to its state of when he passed away. And uh, they, they're just always doing cool stuff. So it was really great to see them get that attention and to bring out some really neat artifacts. So I hope everybody checks it out. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really fun one to watch um, and one that, that we discuss as a class later in the semester. Um, so to get into what our main areas of our main topics are, um, first we'll start with the 1960 Winter Olympic Games. And you write about this in your book. We talked about it last time um, we had a visit, um, but basically, um, the Disney company was called on to kind of oversee the pageantry and the, the ceremony, the medal ceremonies and everything at the Olympic games. Um, and they became heavily involved in the Olympic games, like well beyond kind of what their first mission was with the games. It was almost like at the bottom of the um, job application and, and other duties as applied. Um, or as requested. Can you tell us about what the Walt Disney Company did at the 1960 Winter Games and, and kind of what they ended up, what they started with and what they ended up overseeing at those games? Because they had a very large role. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny you're having me on to talk about this because just uh, recently uh, it was uh, announced or it became public uh, that a documentary that I helped out with about this called The Magic in the Mountains okay. is going to be released uh, soon. It's already online in a couple of places where you can find it. Um, and it talks about the creation of the Squaw Valley Resort and then Disney's involvement in the Olympics. So uh, this is good synergy for me. So I appreciate <laughs> it. But uh, Disney, well, you know, Squaw Valley had gotten the Olympics. Uh, for 1960, nobody thought they were going to get it. It was kind of a publicity stunt. There really was nothing there. There was a lodge that had like burned down and been rebuilt, and there were a few ski lifts, but there was no infrastructure. I mean, there were barely roads going there. There was not enough parking. There was no housing. They didn't have 
government or police or anything. So they had no infrastructure needed to put on an Olympic, even though, I mean, the Olympics were smaller back then than they are now, but still you needed people and things to do it and facilities. So they brought in a lot of people, um, experts on different things, but for pageantry, they called on Walt Disney and they approached him in 1958. Uh, there was a guy uh, named Prentice Hale who was the um, head of the organizing committee. And he went to Walt and you know went to the studio and met with him and asked him if he'd do this. Walt said, yeah. Walt would later say, I had no idea what I was getting into because <laughs> this kind of grew into a whole thing. And what it wound up being was not only doing pageantry, the ceremonies, medal ceremonies, opening, closing ceremonies, decor, entertainment, uh, all these things, but even consulting on things like parking and ticketing and you know, just logistical things, which they had a lot of experience from at Disneyland, and they were able to lend that experience. But also, you know, they were, it was expressly stated when they started, we want this to be the biggest sort of showpiece Winter Olympics ever. And uh, that was their goal. That's what they went for. And one, one thing that, um, my students in the the international sport class that I that I teach, they will be aware that the 1960 Summer Games were very influential, um, in that they were the first televised games. Um, they they had a number of firsts and kind of highlights of those games. Um, but the the 1960 Winter Games. Um, the impact that those had on future games um, is pretty immense. And in your book, you talk about some of the ways that um, the 1960 games, those winter games, have influenced future games and the pageantry around future games. Can you discuss a little bit of that? Yeah, there was a lot of technological, a lot of pageantry I mean, you mentioned tv this was this was the first one uh, they sold the tv rights to cbs for fifty thousand dollars and so uh it because it was the first to be televised it was also the first to have instant replay uh, that was an innovation uh it was the first winter olympics to have an olympic village because there was nowhere for there weren't hotels or anything there weren't houses for people to stay at so they needed an olympic village uh, Disney contributed a lot to that entertainment-wise. Every night they would have entertainment there that was provided by Disney or facilitated by Disney. But it was also, you know, the first Olympics. Other Olympics had had opening ceremonies. But then there's that sort of Disney opening ceremony with uh, a release of doves and fireworks and that kind of thing. Disney brought that aspect in. Uh, they also, in the past, each uh, each event did not necessarily have a big public medal ceremony. But some did, some didn't. Uh, this was the first one where each one had a big ta-da medal ceremony. Things like the design of the torch. John Hinch redesigned the Olympic torch for this event. And 
the, his design, you know, they change over the years, but each one has had that same kind of form factor because he designed it to be easy to carry and things like that. So a lot of things like that, things that we think are, you know, natural, like uh, even as simple as like daytime fireworks, mm -hmm. they build this as, well, this is the first widespread use of daytime fireworks. So a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. And I do, I do want to say something that, that you brought up, but uh, correct something that I had previously said that um, I said the 1960s summer games were the first that were televised. They were televised on a tape delay basis. So basically they had, um, uh, they were, they were shown like in 30 minute segments, I think. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. uh, you are right about this being kind of the first televised. And then once they got to the summer games, they were, they were, doing a few different things but um one of like something i think is really interesting that a lot of people now who watch the games wouldn't realize was actually a need is the the athlete entertainment um and and i don't think a lot of people realize that as part of the olympics um, they, they have to have athlete entertainment. And actually, if you go back to ancient Olympics, um, there was entertainment and writing and um, horn playing and, and uh, uh, like guitar playing and everything, harp playing was, they were actually part of the Olympic games. They had competitions for those. But um, so could you talk a little bit about the entertainment that the, the athletes experienced that maybe wasn't shown to the public, um, whether they were attending or on television? Yeah, uh, this was really cool. Uh, it was a really exciting thing when you hear the, the people who were in those Olympics talk about. It was really exciting for them because, you know, Walt obviously had a lot of contacts in the entertainment world. And he uh, called upon uh, a lot of them to come and uh, do this. Art Linkletter, who had hosted the opening of Disneyland, who was friend of Walt's, Walt kind of contracted him to kind of help line up this talent and have brought in all sorts of people, you know, people you'd think of of the era, people like Bing Crosby. Marlena Dietrich was there. She was a big hit with the German hockey team. And uh, they brought in Jane Mansfield as the media host, which I guess was a, a savvy move on their part. And all sorts of people they had Danny Kay come in to, uh, like he would entertain for the, uh, for the athletes. And, and they would do this every night. They had a dining hall. They would clear out the tables. They would set up chairs. And they always had, uh, and I've seen some like memos about this, they were way over like the fire marshal's mm -hmm. limit for the place. And they would always like try and like shut it down. But then I, I think there was one time where they were trying to, there were so many people there to see Danny Kay and the fire marshal or somebody on his behalf tried to shut it down. And he just sort of made fun of the guy and made it part of the act. And, uh, you know, it was a kind of a, a whole thing. Uh, one night Walt brought the entire uh, Golden <laughs> Horseshoe from Disneyland like all of those guys and brought them up there and had just this really raucous show and, you know, the Western brawl and all this stuff and kind of freaked out the security people because they thought things were getting out of hand. But <laughs> yeah, every night it was like Disney style entertainment for these people. 
Yeah. And, and I don't think that's something that, you know, the casual viewer of we're going to watch the Olympics here in, you know, a week and a half. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that that goes on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think a lot of people realize that what we see as far as the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies and medal presentations and everything um, that really came or was influenced pretty heavily by those 1960 winter games, uh, which is, is really, really cool to, to think about. And they also, you mentioned in your book um, that they, and I, I want to, I want to be somewhat vague about it. So you tell it, so I don't say another wrong thing. Um, but there was, there was a contest and it was either a nightly drawing um, or maybe something else to where people could call home to different countries. What, what was, what were the details of that? Yeah, they had a raffle. I think it was all the medal winners yeah. from that day were kind of put into a raffle or something. I think somebody, and then they would draw somebody's name or somehow pick one of them. And, you know, the prize was you would get to call home wh wherever in the world that would be which was a big deal at the time and you know the stories and you know in all like press stories you never know what's like really really real but there was one you know story that went around that you know one of the persons was so excited uh they they couldn't talk and it was only when they got on the phone that they realized that like nobody in their like little village back home had a telephone yeah. so they didn't have anybody to call but yeah it was something like it was all like part of the show and that was part of that nightly event where they would yep. bring in and, and it would be part of it. So yeah, just a way to keep like the people engaged. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And I mean, one thing, you know, that the company has been very good at for a very long time is keeping people engaged in, in whatever they're, whether it's theater, whether it's movies, TV, theme parks. Um, the, from those 1960 games then if if we're moving forward um did what type of influence did hosting or helping with those 1960 games was there any influence from that over the possibility of opening mineral springs ski resort um did, did they use any of that to, to kind of train for that yeah it's it's funny I was just having a conversation about this with a friend that there's there's this weird continuum that people don't really talk about because it's you see like bits of the story but you don't see the whole arc of the story starting in the 1930s Walt was a skier back in the day mm -hmm. and he helped fund the Sugar Bowl ski resort Okay. in California. Uh, they were, uh, a guy um, was trying to set it up, didn't have enough money. Walt paid into it, helped raise a little money for it. Uh, there's a, a, a mountain there called Mount Disney uh, after him. And so that led over sort of years to the Olympics, which, and at the um, at the Olympics, Walt uh, met a guy named Willie Scheffler, who um, actually, I mean, I maybe mean, there there were a couple of like German guys. No, it was Willie Scheffler. That's right. Hannes Schroll was the guy at, uh, at Sugar Bowl. 
but yeah, this Willie Scheffler guy who, who has is a crazy story in and of itself. He was like a Nazi resistance fighter. Like he fought the Nazis back in Germany, then fled to America. And uh, he was the skier. He, he was advising those Winter Olympics, but he met Walt, they became buddies. And then he became a key advisor as Walt sought out to create a Disney ski resort. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the rest of his life, he was trying to get uh, this project at uh, Mineral King up in up in the mountains of California, uh, off the ground. And even after he passed away, the Disney company continued to try and make that happen. It never did. Eventually they tried another uh, venue at Independence Lake, also in California. Uh, that never happened either. But yeah, there is this whole arc of Walt always interested in like winter sports. Mm -hmm. uh, they opened this venue in Denver called the Celebrity Sports Center, uh, which was, uh, you know, a massive recreational venue. Uh, didn't have skiing, but had a lot of other stuff. And so, yeah, this was an ongoing interest, definitely. Yeah. Well, and even the, as far back as when, you know, he, he got into polo and so the whole studio seemingly many people from the studio got into playing polo and everything um the the kind of interest in in sport within for him and then within the company um and for for anybody who uh any students or anybody's watching or listening um yes mineral king did not end up being built um there is a portion of kind of a, of mineral king and um walt disney world the that's where we got the country bear jamboree for anybody mm -hmm. who was wondering about the origin of of that show um and then also you know you talked about when you were talking about his just interest in winter sports mm -hmm. um it makes me think i've never thought of the why blizzard beach is themed the way that it is and I wonder if that is some type of homage to the, the, the interest that he and others had within the company in the early days of winter sports, um, the Blizzard Beach uh, water park, for those that, that don't know. Um, That's a good question. I don't know. I've never thought about that that way. Uh, but I, I just think there's always been an interest at Disney about doing something with winter recreation and his interest in it had like other effects there was a a, a goofy short in the 1940s called the mm -hmm. art of skiing yeah. and that has a lot of references to sugar bowl in it there's the lot the lodge in that cartoon looks like the lodge at sugar bowl so it you know it did spin off and like his polo they made a short mickey's polo game yeah uh, based on his obsession with uh, polo in the 1930s yeah yeah. And I, I think talking about the um, talking about movies and, and shorts and kind of how they aligned with whatever interests um, he had in sports, winter sports and others, I think is a good segue to to talk about um, the Walt Disney Company has at various times owned stake in different professional leagues or different professional teams, I should say. Um, and then also with during those relationships or during those uh, ownerships, um, they were also producing movies using that sport as the focal point of those movies, which kind of goes back to, you know, one of the reasons Disneyland was built was to 
kind of promote the movies that um, people could watch. So two of the two of the teams that I have pulled out, and, and please let me know if I'm leaving any out, but at one time, um, the Walt Disney Company uh, was part owner of the Anaheim Ducks. At that time, it was the Anaheim Mighty Ducks, and it did coincide with the Mighty Ducks movies. Um, and actually, if I remember correctly, in the second Mighty Ducks movie, the kids on the team actually wear the first jersey that the NHL team wore. Is that yeah. cool? that's correct, right? Yeah. Um, and and tell us why that came about because the story I've heard is very interesting and kind of almost coincidental as to like how that relationship came. Yeah. So as I understand it, I mean, Michael Eisner, who was head of Disney at this time, uh, the biggest believer in synergy of anyone in history. And uh, he was obsessed with hockey. He was a big hockey fan. He'd grown up watching hockey. His two of his kids played hockey. That's when he really got into it. Like I remember in the old, um, when they would send out the annual report every year and it would have a letter from him at the start and it would be like, I'm on my way to my kid's hockey game or something like that. So he was really into hockey and he had been at Paramount when they made Bad News Bears. Mm -hmm. And so in the early nineties, he went to Jeffrey Katzenberg who was head of the studio at the time at the Disney film studio and said, you know, how about you make Bad News Bears, but hockey. And they did. They made Mighty Ducks in 92. And then this kind of coincided with a sort of a weird series of events. Uh, Eisner had had a, I believe, had had an offer to get a hockey team, for Disney to get a hockey team, and had turned it down. And then kind of like had second thoughts about it. Uh, meanwhile, Anaheim, the city of Anaheim, was really trying to get a pro team of some sort. And so they built an arena without having a team to put in it, which seems unwise. It <laughs> turned out to be unwise because they couldn't get anything. And so Eisner was like, well, they have this arena. They have nothing to fill it. They are kind of desperate. Um, maybe this will be a good deal to make, you know. And so he went back to the NHL and did, did his thing. Uh, later, he said that, that, you know, he did it as a just like a good citizen thing for the city of Anaheim. It's not like a big business deal. Uh, it's just, you know, good citizenship. We're doing it for the city of Anaheim. So I don't know how true that is. But anyway, so they got a team. They named it the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, which uh, everybody made fun of in the press. <laughs> Uh, he said, I pulled a quote. He said, if we're a very good team, I think it will be a great name. If we're a very bad team, it will be a bad name. So <laughs> I don't know. He came out to like the, uh, the announcement. He had a Mighty Ducks jersey and he had a hat that said Coach Goofy on it. So he was like really in the middle yeah. of this. He yeah, was yeah. really throwing himself into this. So it, yeah, it started, uh, they uh, they were the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. They played at the Arrowhead Pond uh, Arena. They, um, after they bought the team, they made the second of three Mighty Ducks movies, uh, which was filmed at the pond. A lot of it was filmed at the pond before the team started actually playing there. And, you know, they brought in 
you know, Jack Lindquist, who had been his big Disneyland honcho, and he helped market the team. And, you know, they did everything like in excess. Before the first game at the pond, they had a 15 minute like pre show that cost half a million dollars <laughs> uh, to put on. Wow. So they like, they went full bore and they, you know, they announced that like Ducks, uh, Ducks paraphernalia, um, merchandise would be sold at you know every disney store across the country but the thing is it worked uh in like the first few years mighty ducks like uniforms jerseys and stuff mm -hmm. like that uh outsold all other nhl teams put together so you know it it worked the synergy worked yeah and the like i i really really i i really like that story just kind of how um it, the 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 way it was told to me is it was kind of a person's interest and they had the means to do it because they were head of one of the largest entertainment companies so they could and yeah. so they did um yeah. and and a lot of it was based off of you know their interest of of watching their kids play and everything and you know michael eisner um after he left the company now he is i can't remember which team but he's a part owner of um a, i believe a, a european football team yeah a uh, um, premier league team in yeah. uh, england i can't remember which one and but, um so he definitely you know he definitely even post his disney career has kept up his interest in in um professional sport well, and, and he owns tops tops yeah, uh, yeah. trading cards yeah yeah so he's still deep deep into it yeah yeah i i had forgotten about that um i have i wasn't even planning on showing this <laughs> i have mr eisner's oh. top signed tops trading card that's cool uh, <laughs> it's probably the goofiest thing i own but i love on, it so on the card is it is it um like affiliated because it's like is it affiliated with the team or does it just say like owner of top? Like <laughs> uh, it says a, it's the world's champions businessman. It's number 22 of what? I don't know. Huh. Michael Eisner, a giant of American entertainment. Uh, I have, and get, does a rundown of his career. Eisner is now an investor and owner of the tops company. Huh. So I guess they just made him a little card. <laughs> yeah. That was the the kind of precursor to what you can do now. Like you can send in your picture, and they'll you can pay for them to make you a card. That was, yeah, was kind of like exactly. a precursor. To that. So you just buy the company, and <laughs> yeah. they'll make you a card. Yeah. The um <clears throat> another team that um can you talk about the the history of the company with um, the Anaheim Angels and um which is kind of confusing um because of how the team started and, and um can you talk a little bit about that yeah so gene autry who was an actor and um, sort of famous kind of cowboy western guy uh brought uh the california angels uh or i think originally they were the los angeles angels um in 1960, they were an expansion team when uh, MLB was expanding out west a lot. Uh, they were the second LA baseball team after the Dodgers went out there. 
And uh, from the beginning, Walt uh, Disney was on their board of directors. He was a member of their board of directors until he uh, died in 1966. While he was alive, it moved, they started off in LA, they moved to Anaheim. And that was during Walt, Walt had a little influence in making that happen. And they became the California Angels. Um, fast forward, you know, they always had an association with Disney kind of, because they were down the street, you know, they were, they're really, really close. And in uh, nine, 1994, Disney made, did a remake of the movie Angels in the Outfield, which had been a movie from the 50s, uh, not a Disney movie, which is kind of random. And the original movie, I think, was about Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirates. But they made it about the California Angels instead, since that fit. And it, it did well. And uh, so two years after that, uh, Disney wound up buying, buying the Angels, too. They, they already had the Mighty Ducks. Uh, which played also close to where the Angels played, which was also close to Disneyland. This was also the period where uh, Disney was really starting to think about building a second gate, mm -hmm. uh, a second gated theme park across from Disneyland. And the concept of the Anaheim Resort was really becoming a thing. So here we had this idea of putting together these parcels of land at Disneyland for the park, for maybe a third park for expansion. Then across the way, having this huge plot of land where the baseball team played, and uh, then across from that, the pond. So it all kind of tied together. Disney wound up buying the team, renamed it the Anaheim Angels. Uh, Walt Disney Imagineering came in because they had an old kind of rickety stadium where, uh, incidentally, the Rams had played, the football Rams, which are now back mm -hmm. in L.A., um, had played. And... Um, yeah, so Imagineering came in, fixed up the stadium, made it real nice, and uh, Disney had a baseball team. Yeah, and um, the for people who watch the Imagineering story, in one of the episodes of the Imagineering story, they they do talk about like the Imagineers redesigning a lot of the Anaheim Stadium and 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 adding the if if people haven't seen the outfield behind the wall is this beautiful like rock formation and everything and that, that was something that the Imagineers were responsible for doing um and one one trivia point that I always like to tell um people I actually I told the students this last week when I told them um, we were going to be talking about this um that Angels in the Outfield um had some a, a relatively unknown actor in it um that turned out to be a very, very big name in Hollywood. Um, this was one of his first kind of major Hollywood projects. Um, did, um, do, do you remember who that was? I, I had seen when I, when I was looking up stuff for, for this, uh, I, I'll be honest, I've never seen that movie, uh, but I was surprised at all the people that were in it. It said uh, Matthew McConaughey was in it uh, among many others, yeah. but, Prime Matthew McConaughey. Well, and I, I, I believe I'll have to double check it, but I believe Matthew McConaughey is actually, he is the outfielder who gets picked up by like, there's a scene where an angel Christopher Lloyd yeah. comes in and picks yeah, up yeah. the outfielder to catch. I believe that is Matthew McConaughey. That's uh, hilarious. And that was one of his, um, again, I have to double check, but I believe that was one of his first 
kind of major or marquee roles because before that, like he had been in um, like Days to Confuse, but that was kind of a bit part that grew into something larger for him as the project went on. Um, And and another really cool thing that I, I think a lot of people don't know is when a major league in major league baseball, when a team hosts the all-star game, they create these gifts for all teams um, around the league. And so when the Anaheim angels hosted the all-star game, it was when it was there in the time that Disney owned them. Um, they created Mickey statues for all of the major league teams. And so, so some, you go to major yeah. league stadiums and you could see some of them out like on concourses and everything. And some of them are like behind the scenes. I, I'm a big Colorado Rockies fan. I one time took a, a tour of the, of Coors Field. And that's one of the things that they point out. Um, and they kind of tell the story behind, you know, when the game or when the all-star game was held in Anaheim. So it's just a really, really fun that's kind of funny, tidbit yeah. on it. Um, so we, we've talked about the, the, the interest in winter games, the interest, the, the collaboration with the 1960 games, we've talked about some of the professional leagues or professional leagues they've been associated with the movies that they have created through those associations for cross promotion. Um, but they also have at various times, and a lot of it has happened at Walt Disney World because I, I think the, the space that they have, at various times, they have been affiliated with different professional leagues. Correct me if I'm wrong. They've had um, race car racing events at um, Disney World. They've also had PGA tournaments um, at Disney World. And I was wondering if, if you, how much you know about kind of the background of those type of events and those type of relationships, because they didn't, none of them lasted too long. Um, but I wondered if, if you had ever dug up any research on any of that. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the golf thing goes back like to the very, very start because the, I mean, first the Disney executives who were in charge when Disney world was being designed and built were all big golfers. So golf was going to be a big part of the vacation kingdom. It was built into it. Uh, you know, the resort that is now a, a non-Disney resort called Shades of Green, right near the Polynesian, was originally, it opened in 1973 as the golf resort. It was a golf hotel, centric hotel. And so, you know, they brought in over the years, they expanded their offerings. They had, you know, professional golfers design new courses. And they had these major PGA events there with, you know, the big stars of the era were all down there, you know, all, all the names, uh, all the big names. So, I mean, that was a recurring thing all throughout sort of Disney history. It's kind of fallen off as I think probably the it became it became a less profitable thing for them. Uh, I think they, over the years they've maybe outsourced uh, some of those uh, courses to outside operators, perhaps. But again, in in the 1990s, as you mentioned, they brought in uh, they made the uh, 
the speedway there in the parking lot of the Magic Kingdom. And, uh, you know, originally, I think they had some grand plans to have, you know, tons of major races there. Uh, and I mean, they did have races. I don't think it ever materialized like that. Uh, eventually, they had the Richard Petty driving experience yeah. there where you could, you know, pay and race a, like a stock car around the track. Uh, but I don't think it ever materialized as much as they wanted it to, yeah. to be like a big, like destination venue. Um, but yeah, it's expanded in that, you know, earlier you said they, they bought ABC. A lot of the reason for that was ESPN. Mm -hmm. And so in the late nineties, they created the wide world of sports complex, which is behind you right now, uh, which has been rebranded the ESPN wide world of sports of complex. And, you know, this again goes to Eisner. Eisner had been part of the creation of Monday night football when he was in, in his earlier career at, in TV. So he was really invested in sports. And so they made this, you know, a big destination for, you know, amateur teams, AAU teams, uh, youth league teams, uh, the Atlanta Braves, my team were there. Uh, it was their spring training home for many, many years. They just ended that affiliation. And uh, so the wide world of sports complex has become a, a big, big venue uh, for them over the years. And of course, you know, now they have run Disney, which is a massive thing in and of itself. And he, you mentioned um, Iger and his time with ABC. And, and um, I, I, so part of listening to his book, he talks about being affiliated with Wide World of Sports also, which was um, people now probably don't know, but Wide World of Sports was a very major um, program on ABC. It's a um, big, with, big, big deal, yeah. And um, so, you know, it's no coincidence that, uh, you know, the complex is called Wide World of Sports um, and is also, you know, um, now the ESPN Wide World of Sports. Um, and yes, before we were recording, we talked about, um, a large reason or a big reason for purchasing ABC and capital cities in the early eighties was the ESPN distribution being really the, the only major sports and entertainment programming network at that time. Um, and, you know, it, it's also interesting that um, recently there, there have been rumors what 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 would disney do with espn would you know they they started espn plus and it launched before disney plus and how successful is is espn plus what what's the future of espn with the company and um because like in this latest round of um financial disclosures when the company disclosed how much money they were spending on streaming and or spending on entertainment a massive portion of that was things like television rights for the nfl and um it, nhl and nba and things like that um that it is really really interesting that to think about how the company has been or their relationship with sport um throughout their history uh, it's really, really interesting to, to think about that, the, 
Um, and then you, you did mention run Disney, um, which is, is, is a, a very successful um, program now for the company. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the beginnings, the history of run Disney um, and some of the things that they, they do and the expansion of it, because now it happens so many, you know, it happens on Castaway K now that. Yeah. Well, the, the first uh, Walt Disney World, it wasn't always run Disney. They just had uh, in 1994, they had a Walt Disney World marathon and that was that was it. And so then it became, all right, the Walt Disney World marathon. And it was a, an event. And eventually that led to the creation of something called the Disney Endurance Series, okay. which evolved into run Disney, which is what it is now. Now it is, I, I think it's like, 20 20 something races every year and i mean they have all sorts of every sort of length of race that you can think of every combination of length of race you can think of and you know they have them themed to different events that happen at the resort they have them themed to different characters uh different properties like star wars and marvel and whatever and you know, now they have them around the world. They had them at Disneyland. They've had them in Paris, I believe. As you said, guess what? Hey, uh, it's it's a huge industry now. Uh, they've had sponsorship deals. I know New Balance was a sponsor for a long time, and they they sponsored the running trails at Walt Disney World as part of that. And you know, would have like custom gear and. I mean, for a lot of people, I think it's more a social event than mm -hmm. a race. I mean, a lot of people who go are serious runners. A lot of people are not and go because, you know, the roots go backstage at the theme parks, which is mm -hmm. cool. Uh, they have like character, uh, rare costume characters along the way where you can stop and get a selfie. I mean, no serious runner is stopping to take a selfie <laughs> with the character, but uh, everybody else is. And so it has just become a really massive industry. And I don't know if they ever expected that. I certainly did, but yeah. it's quite a thing. I, I have, um, I, I have, I've run several 5Ks. That, that's about the farthest distance that I, I can run. Um, but I, I definitely have thought about if I'm ever going to do a half marathon or a marathon, I, I would want to do it at Disney because essentially the way I work it in my head is you could run from park to park and then you could walk in the parks. When you got to a certain park, you yeah. just walk while you're there. And then when you're outside of the park, well, you just run to the next park. Um, I know it's not that easy. Um, I know it would be very, very difficult for me, but uh, that that's. Yeah. I won't be doing that anytime life. soon. I always <laughs> see, uh, I'm a night owl. So I'm always awake when like the people are out in the freezing weather and yeah. like, four in the morning getting ready to run 20 miles i'm like nope no thank you. No, thanks. <laughs> they uh so next the the next thing i want to talk about is the wide world of sports complex um which is um as people can see from my background a, a very big recreational and some professional um as you said the atlanta braves played there for a long time at the stadium over my left shoulder um it's a it's a massive sports complex that can host AAU tournaments, um, collegiate tournaments. Um, it, it played a, a big role in um, 
completing seasons during the 2020 pandemic, which we'll talk about here in just a little bit. Um, but <clears throat> can you talk about some of the things that go on at the wide world of sports complex? Uh, so many things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure what their original motivation for this was. I have a feeling it probably was. Well, first, the, you know, Eisner's love of sports, uh, looking for ways to, you know, better utilize empty land at the resort. And, you know, there were always school, you know, in off times down there, they wanted to bring in back when there was, was such a thing as an off time, which there really isn't anymore. Uh, they wanted to bring in like school groups and things like that. Yeah, they would always have cheerleading competitions. I remember at the studios park, uh, they were kind of mm -hmm. terrifying. Uh, but uh, as it grew, uh, they built this venue, which I think was intended to draw uh, youth, uh, large, large, large groups of uh, young athletes. And uh, yeah, it's it's done everything from you know, little league to, to pro, pro sports. And they've expanded over the years and gotten, it's just gotten more and more elaborate. And it seems like there's always something going on down yeah. there. Really. Yeah. In non-COVID times, there's, yeah. there's always something going on. Well, and even like we, I mentioned AAU, uh, the um, Amateur Athletic Union and their, their headquarters, which I read recently, I think they're moving their headquarters Oh, really? It's still, I, I think it's still on property, but they're they're going to be in a different building, maybe. Oh, okay. But the the AAU headquarters for a long time was actually the welcoming center, like the original kind of welcome or planning center for Walt Disney World before it opened. Correct? Like that's where people could yeah. go and they could read about what was going to happen in like the yeah. late '60s and early '70s. And um, first, first, like public facility on property and it's still there uh, you know you would go in and see a model of Walt Disney World that would tell you what's coming and uh, but yeah it has been for a long time the AAU headquarters it's just a weird historical connection yeah and um, so on the wide world of sports um, it does have some regular um, events there regularly um, kind of some of the when in foot, college football, when um, I believe it's the, the Citrus Bowl, I think that's still the name of the stadium in Orlando. I know it's the bowl game, but is that? Is uh, it's the Camping World Stadium okay. now, I believe. Yeah. yeah. In, in Camping World Stadium, that's where they hold, is it the Rhesus um, uh, Senior Bowl? They, they hold one of the post-season yeah. college games. Um, games there like where people go and they play for um, to essentially have extra time to for recruits or professional teams to watch them um, so at ESPN wide world sports they'll hold kind of the collegiate challenges which is they'll feature some of their collegiate quarterbacks and throwing challenges and running backs and receivers and linemen and everything um, they also have done that for the pro bowl um, a few times I thought um, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's something that's more regular um, now since the Pro Bowl Pro Bowl um, for the NFL isn't held in Hawaii. Um, they have recently been doing more and more of that. Um, but is there anything before we get to the before we get to 2020 in that discussion? Is there anything else that that you have come across that they 
regularly do at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex with either professional or collegiate teams or leagues? Uh, nothing that I can think of. I mean, I know they even use it for uh, like corporate clients who come. Like if you want to have an event for your employees, kind of like a field day, you know, like a school field day and or some sort of sports themed event. Uh, you can you can rent it out for that. So it a whole range of clients from you know kids to just corporate people to at, actual athletes. Yeah, yeah. So then um, one of the the last things I want to talk about before we get to I always want to do the rapid questions. You know, um, one of the last things that that I have on my list of topics is when we look at what happened in March 2020. Everything shuts down. Um, leagues shut down. The NBA and NHL were in the middle of their leagues. They suspended play because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the onset. Major League Baseball, was a, they were in spring training, so they actually didn't start their season in 2020 until into July. Um, Major League Soccer had just started their season, so they suspended play. And... As we moved through the pandemic, and I've been lucky enough to, to write a little bit about this, the um, leagues started to look at how they could finish their seasons. And two leagues in particular um, actually chose the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex, um, the National Basketball Association. They were at a point in their season where they were I think it, all teams had they, it was under 20 games left in the season, so they, 15 to 20 games. So they were at a point where they could kind of conclude the season um, at ESPN Wide World of Sports, and they came up the plan that they had. Um, it really turned into kind of this neat like discussion topic of the teams that qualified to be in what they termed the um, Walt Disney World bubble, and um, you know it was like different teams were depending on what how depending on teams records um there were three different hotels on property yeah. that teams stayed in because people weren't you know guests a lot of guests weren't staying or i'm sorry a lot of those hotels they weren't open to guests um and so um can you talk a little a little bit about the nba bubble um from the end of the 2020 season at at ESPN Wide World of Sports. Yeah, well, they brought in, uh, like you said, you know, it was towards the end of the season. So they kind of had an idea of who was in contention for a playoff berth. So they didn't bring all the teams. They brought all the teams that were within, I don't remember how many games of being able to be in mm -hmm. the playoffs, which was most of the teams, just not all. And uh, so they brought them in. And like you said, uh, my favorite thing was, it was like seeding, like yeah. the ones with the best records got the Grand Floridian. <laughs> then the ones a little bit down got Yon Beach Club. Then the ones a little bit down got Coronado Springs. So uh, they converted, you know, this was good synergy because first the NBA was going to lose a ton of revenue mm -hmm. from not broadcasting games. Disney was losing a ton of revenue by not having people in the resort. So it's like perfect synergy. And, um, 
they set up in conference rooms uh, they set up training facilities it's so weird to see pictures of like uh, ballrooms at the hotels with like practice courts and stuff like that and they had like rules crazy 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 rules about who could go into the bubble who could come out of the bubble how you had to be tested regularly uh, at first they didn't allow people's families in eventually they did uh, but they brought in, you know, all the facilities, like training facilities they, they set up. I saw pictures of a pop-up barbershop that they had, uh, ESPN-branded barbershop they had mm -hmm. at uh, Grand Floridian outside. And so just lots of weird, weird stuff like that. And it really was a bubble, you know. They lived off of Disney food and had Disney entertainment and, you know, did recreational stuff like, like did fishing and golf and all the stuff that you can do at Disney World, but just all within their little bubble. So yeah, it was a weird experiment, but in the end, uh, the NBA certainly seemed happy with it at the end. Uh, the players, you know, some griped about it, some thought it was funny. Um, but yeah, just kind of a weird experiment. Yeah, and I remember you mentioned the families. I remember it was like, because um, they each team went and they played eight games to kind of close out the regular season. And then um, they had this seeding. That was actually the start of kind of the, the way the playoffs have worked for the last two years, um, where your first one through six actually make the playoffs and then seven through 10 play each other to see who's going to get those final two playoff spots. They kind of did that with the bubble. Um, and uh, then once they started the playoffs, I believe it was teams that made it to the second round of the playoffs. So essentially the conference semifinals, that's those teams could bring their families yeah. um, because essentially at that point, you think about the teams that didn't make the cut for the playoff leaving. And then the, the teams that didn't make the first cut and then lost out in the first round, um, you know, they were left with, I think eight teams at that point. So they could bring in more capacity um, so they brought in families and everything, but it, it turned into this really neat, like just the way that it was covered and everything. Obviously everything's covered on ESPN. All the games are on ESPN. Mm -hmm. um, this, the arenas, uh, I remember watching and thinking how neat it was that the arenas, they couldn't have fans in them. So they had, you know, these huge virtual, they had these huge television boards um, and, if you were a fan of a team, you could kind of sign up and sort of enter this lottery to be attending the game via Zoom. And so you would see like they would have fans on the boards and everything. And they would even do uh, the team that was the home team for that game. They would like have cheers for that team. And it would it, like the video boards would be decorated. Um, and, and portions of the court would be decorated for like whatever team was playing, which I thought was just, it's just such, it was such a neat thing to see. Um, and I also remember that during that time, um, it was disclosed that Disney was kind of, Disney kind of wanted to use this for sort of a, a, a practice run with, the, to get inroads with the NBA. Um, that you know maybe there would be something more regular that would happen on a maybe an annual basis or a semi-annual basis that could happen on Walt Disney World property. Um, so it's just a, a really really cool thing, a way to get in with um, the NBA and everything. 
Um, which on that on that note, since we're talking about the NBA, there is an NBA team in Orlando um, that actually does not have an affiliation with Walt Disney World. However, the name certainly seems to you know link itself to the Orlando Magic and everything. Oh yeah, pretty um, pretty clearly. And I, I remember when they started, there was a lot of like sorcerer Mickey hats and pixie yeah. dust and kind of this stuff. So the connections seem pretty clear. Also, and, they have the uh, biggest uh, biggest Disney fan NBA player on their roster now. So yeah, uh, yeah. Are are you talking to Robin Lopez? Yeah, Robin yeah. Lopez. Because yeah. I was going to mention when when he when his because I think he was with the Brooklyn Nets at the time when they lost out of the wide world of the um, Walt Disney World bubble. Um, he had tweeted like. It was a joke, but he's basically like, you can't make me leave. I'm just going to go like to the Magic <laughs> yeah. Kingdom every day now. Like, yeah. um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, the company seemed to like it. The NBA seemed to like it. Some players, yeah, had some issues with it. And it, it, it on, I mean, would be a very taxing system. You know, it was, it was very, very intense. I think it lasted two and a half months, maybe, um, that they, essentially I'm living somewhere in, in that tight of a bubble and, and everything being tested regularly. Um, there was something, there, the one other thing I want to mention about the NBA bubble, and then we'll move on to the MLS. Um, a lot of people don't know that the NBA bubble, they were working with, um, a, a, and I'll get the school wrong, so I'm not going to say what university it was, but they were working with a university in um, gathering data on testing procedures. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever heard about this, but mm -hmm. they, um, all the players had to be tested, I think it was like two or three times a, a week. If anybody ever tested positive, then they had to, it was that two-week quarantine, and in that period of time, they had to test like a certain number of times and after they came out of quarantine quarantine maybe they were tested every day for a, a series of days and definitely there's there's arguments to be made of you know leagues like that testing and and, and using up all of the tests that were available at that time yeah. um, there's definitely arguments to be made about that which is i think one reason why the nfl is maybe going away from testing for the rest of the play testing the way that they did for the rest of the playoffs um but I thought that was really, really neat that the, the NBA was actually working on how to, they were measuring these testing procedures. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just a sports entertainment um, like endeavor. It was actually like, it was helping public health and inform public health, which I thought was really, really neat. And and really, I wish would have received a lot more attention than it did because yeah, I think I that was not heard about cool. that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And they actually, you know, it was it was one of the first to be able to come out and say, essentially, hey, all of these procedures work. All of these um, things that we're doing work because this is the number of players that were positive before they came into the bubble and couldn't come. You know, they they couldn't come in until they were negative, and then at a certain point, I know they announced once or twice, or maybe even more, that there were no positive cases in the Walt Disney World bubble. There was no one having to quarantine or isolate. Um, and so I thought that was really neat to, to, to note of how they 
they use that for public health reasons. Um, another league, the Major League Soccer, they had just started their season. And this one was a little more confusing to me when I read about it and actually saw it being played. But essentially, they, um, in July or maybe even early August, I can't remember exactly when, they held a, a tournament at Walt Disney World. Um, and then they did end up holding an abbreviated um, kind of rest of the season in their home cities. But they, they also, you know, played there um, at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. And I didn't know if you had any information that we don't know about that one. Nothing that, uh, nothing really. Uh, yeah, this one was kind of vague to me. Uh, I didn't really hear much about it at the time, which is weird because he heard about the bubble mm -hmm. everywhere. And this was, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't some kind of like, it was almost like a pre, even though it wasn't before their season would be, it was almost like a preseason tournament. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a, um, I guess it was just keep, you know, if you're an athlete, you want to play because you want to stay in shape. You know, you can't just go sit for six, nine months or whatever. So I have a feeling it was done probably with that in mind. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely didn't get as much notice, I guess, as the NBA bubble did for sure. Yeah, they it, it, it was this really confusing. I remember watching and keeping up with um, the Colorado Rapids and like each team was playing three games, three matches and Colorado ended up, I think they lost two matches and tied one match. So they were kind of, they were eliminated from the bubble. And I remember thinking like, Oh, they're, you know, they're eliminated from the season. And then like three weeks later, they're actually playing regular season games yeah. in color. So it, it was this yeah. really like difficult thing to understand. Not, I guess, not well explained to, um, casual sports fans but yeah it was sort of this like it was like a pre early season tournament that it, and it did have real consequences that the teams that advanced the farthest like they received more points in the regular uh, yeah. season and things like yeah. that um, but it was um, it definitely was was much more confusing than the NBA bubble that that they that, which that's not Disney. That, that was the league that created that. Yeah. Um, so it, anything else that you have come, of come across, before we get into our rapid questions, anything else you've come across that deals with the company's relationships with sports at any time in its history? You know, uh, well, there's... Um... A couple of things. Uh, one was, you know, a lot of the people that were involved in the pageantry of the 1960 games were also involved in LA's summer games in 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, and the mascot for that, the Santa Eagle, was designed by a Disney artist, Bob Moore. And he mm -hmm. was, I remember, I was a little kid, but I remember that eagle being everywhere on stuff. Uh, so there's a thread there. Also, something I thought about while we were talking that I had not thought about, you know, in the lead up to our conversation was that while I was growing up and a lot throughout the 90s, the big, big rumor that kept popping up was that Disney World was going to try and get the Olympics for Disney mm -hmm. World. Uh, I mean, I remember that coming up 
all the time as like a rumor and Disney would just kind of him and haw about it. Uh, so, you know, with the wide world of sports there, who knows? I mean, who knows if that would ever happen ever. Uh, but it is, it's something that had been discussed at least in the mm -hmm. press a lot over the years. Well, and now that you mentioned it, I do remember reading several things during 2020 about, um, because I've, the Tokyo 2020 games were postponed a year. And then even leading up to in the summer of 2021, when um, the kind of sports ministries of different countries were still discussing if they were going to send athletes and everything and should the would the games be held in Tokyo or would they just kind of cancel the games I do remember a few articles that discussed maybe Walt Disney World and ESPN Wide World Sports in the Central Florida region being a hub that could host the Olympics on a more short-term basis because it yeah. was it was equipped to do a lot of this stuff and <clears throat> being that it was the summer games um, they had a lot of the facilities that would be needed for those so I when you mentioned that I I do remember reading a few things about that um, and, and then yeah hearing the rumors that maybe someday they would want to get the Olympics and everything um, and so I, I, I really really Thank you for um, entertaining all of these topics. Um, sure, my pleasure. The, as you know, with when we do rapid questions at the end, um, and since the first time we talked, we talked about your fandom and, and parks and favorite foods and everything's in the parks. Um, I tried to come up with specific questions for this topic. So I have three, and, and you could, as with the first time you could, give an answer for these. You don't have to give an answer at all. Um, but the first rapid question I have is, is there something, a relationship um, that Disney has had with a sports league or franchise in the past that no longer exists that you would like to see come back? Hmm. I mean, I I am a big baseball fan. I would love for them to still have a, a baseball, an MLB team. Mm -hmm. I think that's that'd be really cool. And if they had kept the Angels, they wouldn't have renamed themselves the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which is, I think is <laughs> favorite. So, uh, that that was uh, a fun thing. Uh, it would be nice to have an AL team to root for. So yeah, that would be me. Yeah, and um. I on that topic, do you, I just remember reading the, the reports that um, the Braves were, were moving to a different stadium, but essentially they got a different minor league or spring training stadium built in Florida. Um, was there more, did, in your area, because you are in central Florida, was there any more detail provided on them moving and the reasons they were moving and other teams not moving into the wide world of sports because at that same time the houston astros moved from Kissimmee to a different stadium in florida um and so that that stadium is is now vacant during spring training yeah uh, well and now that you say that that may be my answer to the first question the thing that i wish was still a thing 
because I thought it was always so cool to have the Braves have their spring training at the Wide World of Sports. I what I recall reading was that sort of the center of spring training activity in Florida had kind of shifted. It's uh, I don't know where where it really is now. Maybe more on the West Coast. I don't know. Uh, I think they just wanted to be closer to where the other teams were. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is my recollection. That don't quote me on that. Uh, but I, as to why nobody else has moved in, I don't know whether there's just not a lot of activity of that type going on in this specific area. Or I mean, it's, it's a great facility. You'd think a team would want that association because yeah. you get a ton of PR from it. So I don't really know. Well, and there's been, you know, there there's been. PR in the past for teams associated with Disney. So I, I would definitely think like you have, a, if I'm a minor league team, or I'm sorry, if I'm a major league team that doesn't have a strong following, especially a strong following in that region, um, mm-hmm. it made sense for the Atlanta Braves there. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, the, the Rays really need it because they already have a strong following there, although they, they could boost it. Um, but I, I, I would want, to have my team play there because you do yeah. get a lot of exposure from it. I mean, um, look at what hap- has happened for the University of Oregon. You know, they're, they, their affiliation with, um, they still hold the kind of, they still hold the um, note that they're the only college team to actually have a Disney mascot for their yeah. official mat. Like Donald Duck is the official mascot that for the yeah. Oregon Ducks. Um or I, I guess I should say the, the picture of Donald Duck, but um, yeah, I would, I would think I would want a association there as well. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not really versed on all the facilities of minor league baseball down at, or of, uh, uh, you know, temporary baseball facilities in Florida, but I would imagine that the facility at Disney is way better mm-hmm. than a lot of the other spring training facilities that are out there. So I don't, I don't know. The, um, the next one is um, we talked about something that has happened that no longer there's a relationships no longer there that you would like to see come back. Is there a new sport affiliation or relationship that you would like to see for the company? That's a really good question. Oh, man. What could it be? Uh, Something, some sort of uh, ACC basketball something would an ACC basketball tournament down here would I think would be great. Yeah, I'd be all for that. Some some sort of maybe preseason ACC event. I don't know, but I yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, and then the last one for the rapid questions um, of of all of the stories you've researched, maybe some of the ones we've talked about today. I'm sure there are a lot more. Um, do you have a favorite sport story about the company? Hmm. There are a few. I mean, there are funny stories about, um, you know, Walt, like I said before, you know, Walt had sponsored the Sugar Bowl Resort and he went up there a lot with his family. And, you know, this was before the days when people were, well, before he was on TV, before anybody was on TV, but before he was on TV, before everybody knew what he looked like, and he could just be Walt Disney or just be a guy. And uh, there was one night at the 
at the lodge there where the bartender, I don't know, something happened to the bartender. So walked ended bar for <laughs> for people for like for a while, for an evening and just had a good old time. So stuff like that. Uh, there are lots of weird little tidbits about uh, the Olympics uh, in 1960 for, um, you know, all the stuff that went on, all the people that were involved from the Disney studio who would go on to become legends. But one I just discovered recently, which I was not aware of, but the official organ player of the 1960 Winter Olympics was the guy who was the manager of the Wurlitzer organ store on Main Street in Disneyland. He was the manager there and would play demos of Disney music on the Wurlitzer organ in Disneyland. And uh, he he went up to be the official organist of uh, the Winter Olympic Games. So that's an, another weird bit of synergy. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very cool. Uh, this is a very cool story. That So Michael, um, thank you for this um, as always. It's, it's just awesome to, to sit back and, and hear the, the stories that you tell um, and, and try to um, maybe try to add a little bit here and there, but um, definitely not, you can't keep up with what, what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> it's awesome to have you uh, join us again. Um, for people that, that haven't heard the first podcast or watched the first video, um, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, well, I can, you find me at Twitter at Progress City USA. You can also check out progresscityusa.com. Um, I'm mostly, you know, active on Twitter. I post sort of, sort of what I'm up to, what's going on, but follow me in either one of those places. You can find links to uh, the podcast I do, uh, is at podcast.progresscityusa.com, but there's a link on the main page. So, uh, that that should mostly allow you to keep up with anything I'm doing. Okay, well, perfect. And again, thank you so, so much, Michael. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, you too. Bye. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Haver. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and listening and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class or interviews with guests, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class, you can do so by following me on Twitter at chaverphd. That's C-H-A-V-A-R-D-P-H-D. Or by joining the public group on Facebook, Being a Fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guests we've had in class, their contact information is included in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a great time having you. If you like what you hear, please share this out so other people can engage with the information, possibly learn more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. With that, thank you again and have a great day. Thank you.